We see Jesus, increment 206, <clears throat> to save completely, part two. To save completely, part two. This one is going to have a subtitle called Theosis. Theosis. And Father, we pray that you'll grant us the gift of your love, the gift of hope, the gift of faith, and the gift of grace to understand what we're about to explore in your word. Grant a larger hope to the generations coming up now, Father. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Theosis is a word that patristic and present-day so-called Eastern Christian theology uses. The word is not found in the New Testament, incidentally, but the Greek word theotes is T-H-E-O-T-E-S. That's found in Colossians 2.9. It's etymologically related to theosis. Theotes means divinity. All the fullness of divinity dwells in Jesus bodily, according to Colossians 2.9. And we are complete in him, Colossians 2.10. You ever put those two together? It's remarkable. All the fullness of divinity dwells in Jesus bodily, and we are complete in him. To be complete in Christ then, and remember, we're engaged in a heuristic treatise in which we discover for ourselves what to save completely means. To be complete in Christ means that we are participants with him of the divine nature. This is compatible with 2 Peter 1.4, a, a verse that should be written over really our great salvation, what it means, Second Peter 1, four, where we're told that according to the great and precious promises of God, we are to be partakers of the divine nature. This participation, keyword, is a result of union with God made possible through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He participated in human nature, in union with us, we could say, without ceasing to be divine, so that we could participate in the divine nature in union with him without ceasing to be human and without essentially becoming divine, becoming God, as it, some would say. You are complete in the one in whom all the fullness of divinity, theotis, theotis, resides bodily. It is the intent of God that all of humanity, and indeed all of creation, be filled up with all the fullness of God. That's Ephesians 3.19. That means something not only personally or ecclesiologically, but universally. So the homilist tells us 
the following in Hebrews 7.23. On top of this, on the one hand, many became priests by reason of death, preventing them from continuing indefinitely in office. But he, on the other hand, because he remains forever, has a permanent non-transferable priesthood. Therefore, and this is our focus of both increment 205 and 206, he is able to save completely those who come through him to God. He lives to make intercession for them always. Death was the great preventer for the many priests of the first order to continue indefinitely in office. Our one, as opposed to many, one forever priest continues indefinitely because he conquered death not only for himself but for all. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15:57. He gives us not only the victory over death but a share in his own life or a participation in his own life. The very plurality of priests of the old order indicates the weakness of the old priesthood. Plurality equals weakness in that case. Just as the vast number of sacrifices that they made advertised their inefficacy, the very fact of a plurality of sacrifices, in fact a multiplicity of them into the millions, perhaps even billions of sacrifices, merely advertised their inefficacy because they needed to be repeated and repeated and repeated. In contrast is the one priest who continues without interruption or termination in his intercession and advocacy and is once and for all and forever one sacrifice which is universally and eternally efficacious. Karl Barth is right to write that, quote, the inner meaning of Christianity defies analysis. I think that's so true, and I think because of that, much of our teaching has to be heuristic, <clears throat> leaving room for discovery of that which defies analysis. This defiance of analysis also applies to Christian soteriology, or the study of salvation. To be saved completely, as the Hebrews writer puts it in Hebrews 7.25, is a phrase, therefore, that also defies analysis. <laughs> Sozain, eis to panteles, the Greek phrase, is a prepositional phrase that certainly defies facile analysis or an easy analysis. It means both to save completely and to save forever. So one is kind of a spatial, the other a kind of temporal idea. But what is this complete, this what we might call maximum salvation? Quits it. What is it? Commentators suggest that an accent falls on temporal deliverance in trials here. But temporal deliverance is nowhere near satisfactory. If you're going to deal with a phrase that appears only once in the Bible to save completely, as it does here, 
It certainly falls short to suggest that, the, that temporal deliverance and preservation of the faithful is the total or even the main meaning intended. It, now, it's true that Jesus saves. He saves his people through times of trial and severe pressure. He saves them through pandemics, through inflation, through economic disaster, social degradation and degeneration, war. He preserves them in persecution and in times of historical disaster, as is exemplified in the Jews whom God rescued and liberated in the exodus from slavery in Egypt under the fascist pharaoh, and as also was illustrated in the Christians who escaped Jerusalem's impending catastrophe to Pella, having received warnings from God speaking in his Son and by the Holy Spirit. It's also true that Jesus delivers his servants to himself, not from, but sometimes through death. As in the case of Stephen, his martyr witness. The word witness, in fact, there is martyr. Acts 7:59 to 60, Acts 22:20, 20, and also Antipas, whom the Son of Man referred to as my martyr witness. Antipas ho martus mu ho pistos, my faithful witness. It's true, then, that the salvation, soteria, spoken of here includes deliverance and preservation in times of fiery ordeals, as Peter called the one in 1 Peter 4.12. It's also certainly true that this kind of deliverance and preservation would be of great interest to the first intended readers of Hebrews, given their situation. But it says to save completely. Again, that's the focus of our two increments, 205 and 206. What does a complete salvation, effected by God through Jesus Christ, look like? I think we have to look beyond the crucible of time for the answer to that. For God's salvation is initiated and culminated in eternity. Romans 8, 29 to 30. Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. Revelation 13, 8. Just as much as it was effected and finished in time and history on Skull Hill, Golgotha, outside the gate of Jerusalem of the second temple. In the time around the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., the nature of salvation, or that which David Bentley Hart referred to as the Christian narrative of salvation, was essentially about deification. Deification. Not man becoming divine, per se, but humankind becoming, quote, partakers of the divine nature, to use a Petrine construct, again in 2 Peter 1.4. Succinctly put by heart, it's, quote, a real union of creatures with God himself, effected in the person and actions of the Son and by the mediation of the Spirit. In words chosen by Michael Paul Gamma, 
in his book entitled Theosis, quote, God himself, through his son, exchanged our life for his, and in doing so was inviting us to share in who he is, in his very divinity, though not by nature, but by grace. Saved by grace means much more than meets the eye, then, I'd say. Gamma also cites a man named Norman Russell on the subject of theosis, and this is what Russell wrote. Theosis implies more than redemption or salvation. It is not simply the remedying of our defective human state. It is nothing less than our entering into partnership with God, our becoming fellow workers with him, 1 Corinthians 3.9, for the sake of bringing the divine economy to its ultimate fulfillment. Now in Hebrews parlance, those who come to God through Jesus, the forever priest, are saved as a part of a divine universal rescue mission. I use that word rescue mission advisedly. Or two rescue missions in which all of creation is liberated from its slavery to corruption. Isaiah 55, 13, Romans 8, 20 to 23. But it's also much more than a rescue, this salvation. Much more than a rescue. Theosis means to be saved to the point of a glorious participation in the divine nature with God in all and all in God. To get a clearer picture, let's look at a couple things in Sergius Bulgakov's The Lamb of God. Speaking of Jesus, he says, and I'm quoting now, he introduces the creature into the life of the Holy Trinity. He is not only the reconciler of the sinful creature with God, but he is also the mediator between creatureliness itself with divinity. In his high priesthood, he surmounts the ontological abyss separating the creator and the creature. And this mediation will not cease in the ages of ages. It will continue even beyond the limits of this world. Jesus saves completely by, quote, introducing the creature into the life of the Holy Trinity. Let's think of that when we think of the phrase to save completely. In this same paragraph, it's as if Bulgakov heard and answered a question that I posed some time ago in this series. Will there ever be a time when Jesus' priesthood ceases? Meaning, of course, Will there ever be a time in future time or eternity when his ministry as archpriest ceases according to the meaning of for the age that's sometimes given to the phrase ice tone aona? So Bulgakov's reply to that question is, this mediation will not cease in the ages of ages. 
it will continue even beyond the limits of this world. Now, we could take some time out, perhaps in the near future, perhaps in the later future, to explain just what that means. But for now, we're considering what does it mean to save completely. But here in Bulgakov's sublime paragraph, I was tempted to quote a much more lengthy quote of his, but everything he wrote is pretty good. Some of it is sublime. And here in this sublime paragraph, we have a much clearer and fuller orbed characterization of what it means to save completely or to save to the uttermost, both senses of which are appropriate to the phrase. So even more penetrating into this meaning is the following in Bulgakov. And again, I'm reducing what I should be quoting here. He says, with the completion of the kenosis, not only does the Son of God receive from the Father the glory that belonged to him before the creation of the world, but the Son of Man is also glorified in the God-man. And this glorification of his humanity, with emphasis on humanity, is not the return of the glory. Creation receives it here for the first time. The God-man's earthly humanity follows his ascension to heaven. And then the entire church, Ephesians 2.6, in the age to come. Then he says, this is the deification of humanity. Deification. The deification of humanity, however, as you might have already guessed, is a potentially scandalous phrase in our time. It must certainly be explained and clarified. In a section of Michael Paul Gamma's Theosis, a highly recommended book, only 132 pages, but highly recommended. The section of Theosis he helpfully entitles What Theosis is Not, which is what deification is not. In that section, Gamma writes, while the divine God-man is God by nature, we humans participate in the divine nature only by grace. So deification in the sense that Bulgakov and many of the patristic Eastern theologians intend it, is not making human beings into God. The Greek term theosis refers to the participation of humanity in the divine nature, which is perfectly compatible with biblical soteriology and with the exceedingly great and precious promises of God. Salvation to the uttermost is a phrase better served by participation in the divine nature than by the notion of forensic justification by individual faith and the promise of going to heaven when you die. That's not enough for the emerging generation. They don't find satisfaction in that personal justification by personal faith and then eternal security, and then you go to heaven when you die. Of course, leaving off countless millions of people who don't exercise 
personal faith, don't receive justification, and then are consigned to an absolutely immoral and psychotic notion of an eternal hell. The idea of an eternal hell is both psychotic and immoral. You can't believe that doctrine very long without entering into moral and mental corruption and possibly even psychosis or psychoneurosis. It's a terrible evil. And one rightly being abandoned by the up-and-coming emerging generations of our children and grandchildren. They need the offer of a better hope. Deification, theosis, is one way of describing that better hope. Now, if ever the Christian faith, and this I could almost put into the form of a thesis in bold print, and you'll see it in print. If ever the Christian faith and Christian hope is to survive in the future, during the course of this present evil age, it will have to offer the narrative of such a great salvation that can be described as the restoration of all things and the redemptive recapitulation of all things in the heavens and on earth, invisible and visible in God's Christ. Nothing less than that. That's the full gospel. Ephesians 1.10, 120. A salvation that has already been accomplished in Jesus Christ and has yet to be universally and fully revealed in what may properly and correctly be called an apocalypse. Without this vision of a complete salvation, people perish. And more and more of the emerging generations are checking off the box none, N-O-N-E, in surveys that inquire about religious affiliation. In some cases, I might be bold enough to say that it's almost better to have to be a nun in that sense than to belong to an empty evangelical parade of human marketing, human devices, human entertainment, and a partial meaningless gospel. Now the offering of this narrative that we're talking about, the restoration of all things which all the prophets spoke about since time immemorial, so it must have something to it. The offering of this narrative that I'm talking about to the world by the apostolate of those whom God has gifted with faith, the apostolate today is not by a succession of apostles, but the apostolate today is simply all whom God has gifted with faith, who hold forth to the world and even to a crooked generation the word of life, the word of life, Philippians 2, 15 to 16. This is the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery. Hebrews make that Romans 16.25. And this is what I call the contagion of hope. The promise embedded in the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a cosmic mystery. And the having of that hope deserves the description 
mere Christianity, which we may borrow from C.S. Lewis. The God-man, Christ Jesus, is said to be able to save completely those who come to God through him in Hebrews 7.25. Only God can save. God in Christ and Christ as God is able to save. The power or the ability to save completely is only God's power. It is omnipotence in union with unrestricted love and demonstrated in uncontingent grace and universal mercy. Salvation is of the Lord. Psalm 3.8 Now, a man may be able to save another man from drowning and thus to save another man's life. A woman may be able to save her child from choking and thus to save the child's life. Firemen and police officers and first responders of all kinds, as well as medical nurses and doctors, make a business out of saving lives, as do members of the military in all its branches. The prayer of faith prayed by believers may, quote, save the sick, close quote, from worse sickness and from death, James 5.15. One who turns a person away from a sinful, self-destructive course of action and direction may save his life from death or save her life from death, says James 5.20. Or poetically speaking, speaking, snatch them from the fire in Jude 1.23, which doesn't mean save them from hell but from disastrous ordeals in life. But only God through Jesus Christ can and does save completely, closing the abyss between the sin-infected and infested creation and the living eternal creator. Only God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit can bring humanity and all of creation into a living union with himself. Faithful is he who called us, who also will do this. Only God in Christ and by the Spirit can save completely. Only God is that powerful. In our passage under present scrutiny, power is an important factor. Jesus is a priest by virtue of the power of an indestructible life. That power is exercised in saving completely those who come through him to God. To the point of theosis. To the point of their deification. To the point of their glorious participation in the divine nature. To the extent of God being all in all. We've already handled the phrase, those who come to God through him in previous messages, and we've shown that this is ultimately all of humanity and all of creation because no one and nothing, no being comes to God and certainly no creature becomes absorbed in God except through him, except through Jesus Christ. 
Peter again is pertinent when he declares that Jesus, quote, died as the righteous one for the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18. Well, all of humanity, every human being with the exception of Jesus, is unrighteous or unjust. And so, he, the righteous, dies for the unrighteous to bring all to God, for all are unrighteous. When we are brought to God, we are brought into union with him to share what Aquinas called life in the highest degree, the very life and fellowship of the triune God. Salvation then can be said to be everlasting because it has no end. The life, capital L, that we have because of salvation can also be said to be everlasting for it too has no end. But it can also rightly said to be eternal because it is a participation in God's eternal life which had no beginning and has no end. Again, the ability to, or the power, the ability, or the power to bring about or to effect this participation, this extreme salvation, is all and entirely divine. According to Philippians 3.20-21, this act of salvation is accomplished by the power that our Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, has. Not only to save, but to bring all things into a willing submission that is equal to salvation. A complete salvation no doubt includes temporal and historical deliverances, and sometimes miraculous acts of preservation from various dangers and threats. God engineers what I used to call providential reversals, and still do, in a study of Philippians 1, 12 to 20. But to be saved to the uttermost, I like the way that's put in some translations, or to be saved completely, is ultimately to be deified in the sense that we have given to the word in this increment. This is the soteriology that will constitute the hope that the Christian message holds out to the world in Philippians 2.16. It's called the word of life again, the word of life which needs to be held out in the future as it has begun to ring out in the present. And this hope is surely in accord with a universal salvific apocalypse. USA. 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 Universal salvific apocalypse not confined to a stilted and stunted notion of forensic imputation based on one's personal faith. In this universal liberation, 
the individual salvation of each and every creature, including each and every human being, does have and will have its own unique value and its own special testimony to God's saving grace and efficacy. I do not take away from individual, personal salvation. I do take away from personal, individual causation of salvation. But the hope we're talking about knows of no double predestination or double outcome of the last judgment, with some predestined to heaven and others to an eternal hell of torment. The word of life contains no psychotic predilection toward an endless hell of torment for non-Christians or unbelievers. And I call that again a psychotic predilection. Not only is the predilection itself psychotic, but it's psychosis producing. And it also tends toward a moral corruption. As Barth, again, boldly stated, and this is a quote from volume four, quote, for in the New Testament it belongs to the distinctive essence of all who live in the world that the decision which has been taken in Jesus Christ does actually affect them too and their being. Jesus Christ is their Lord and head as well. And they too, whether they have been known or whether they have known him or not, I'll say that again, whether they have known him or not, are only provisionally and subjectively outside him and without him in their ignorance and unbelief. For objectively, they are his. They belong to him, and they can be claimed as his, de jure, or de jure, which means, D-E-J-U-R-E, means by right, or as my grandfather Fred used to say, by all rights. He'd look at me maybe in the early afternoon when we were working in our janitorial service, and he said, you know, Ricky, by all rights, we should be fishing. <laughs> God has put all his divine power at the disposal of human and of creation's salvation. Which is the same as saying humanity and creation's completion. The complete salvation of humanity and creation is in fact creation's and humanity's completion. Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely sozain aisto panteles, those who come through him to God. I hope, and I use that in the most intense way, I hope, that the phrase to save completely has been justified in this increment of study and in the previous one, given its due, due place, although I could never claim to defining it completely. Human articulation is insufficient to describe such a great salvation in Hebrews 2.3. So it's left to the spirit 
who causes hope to overflow in us in Romans 15, 13, to fill in the huge gap left by human inadequacy. It's also left to him to pour out the gift of God's own love in us. And to do justice to what a complete salvation looks like. We know it's tied to glorification in Romans 8.30 and Habakkuk 2.14. We know it's described as a participation in the divine nature. Again, 2 Peter 1.4. A verse worth memorization and taking to heart. We know it's linked to the new creation of all things. In Revelation 21.5, even now as we live in this world, in this present evil world, this present evil age, in Galatians 5.16, we walk by means of the Spirit. Even now in this world, and in the stage of this world called the evil age, the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5.22-23, to is born by those who walk in the Spirit, in Galatians 5.16. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc., are all characteristics of the divine Spirit. So our experience of the fruit of the Spirit is therefore a premonition of our glorification. It's part of our theosis, our deification in the present. Our experience of the fruit of the Spirit is a premonition of our glorification. For as we walk in the Spirit, we bear the characteristics of God as fruit of lives hid with Christ in God. Though it is certainly true that our great archpriest is able to deliver and preserve his people in times of trouble and danger, It is also certainly true that this is only one tiny aspect of the great salvation that the triune God has undertaken for all of humanity and all of creation. There's one more sentence in Hebrews 7.25b. We'll close with it. He lives to make intercession for them always. Jesus, as our great archpriest, mediates for those who come to God through him. Even as the Holy Spirit intercedes for us always and is with us always and will never leave or forsake us. Jesus mediates for all those who belong to him while they pass through the desert of their incompletion on the way to the glorious apocalyptic completion of creation. Even when we sin, 1 John 2.1, I write to you that you don't sin, but if anyone does sin, let her know, let him know that he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who is a good man for her, a good man for him a good man for me. Jesus Christ, the righteous one himself, is the embodiment of the expiation of the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 1-2. Until we are brought 
to the extremity of our so great salvation in glorification. Jesus Christ is the righteous one for us all. Help us to see him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.